Welcome to the OI Podcast. We are again broadcasting from home and we are picking up our discussion this week from the last time we talked about an ancient Egyptian spell that incites desire and compulsion. This papyrus that we've been working on in the University of Michigan collection, the text written in Demotic script and Demotic language from Roman period Egypt, the first and second centuries AD. And in this spell, a woman is asking a ghost to infect a man with love sickness for her. Inspired a lot of people to want to learn more. Uh, we've had a lot of hits on it, a lot of views, and uh, it's received a lot of popularity, generated a lot of worldwide news. Um, Robert, did you expect such a large turnout for this discussion? Well, Egyptian religion, Egyptian magic is always a very popular topic, but it is extremely gratifying to see the large number of viewers that our podcast has received, which has encouraged us to do another. But first, I'd like to thank Owen Jaros, whose article for Live Science lifted our article out of academic obscurity and led to a series of interviews and news items globally, culminating in these Oriental Institute podcasts. Owen was also the only journalist to send us links to the final published articles, and I had to go out and search online for all the others. So thanks, Owen. You're a pro. Well, in the second podcast, we have a chance to talk about, in more in depth, of, of some of the aspects we skirted through last time. Uh, one of the timely things to note that might have been overlooked is the fact that the Egyptian depicted here on this papyrus has a beard. I say timely because many Americans right now are giving up shaving. Uh, however, this is a cultural phenomenon of the Roman period. Egyptians had traditionally been clean-shaven. The king wears an artificial beard. Basically, it's a strap-on around the, the chin. But most individuals did not. However, in the Roman period, it's quite common, as we can see not only on our papyrus, but also on the so-called Fayum portraits, which are paintings of Egyptians done in a Greek style on a board that was then used in place of a mummy mask in the Roman period. So we have actual depictions of the contemporary Egyptians, not only in painting, but also on each traditional Egyptian funerary stela. Here we can see an, a native Egyptian wearing now contemporary, in the Roman period, Greek-style clothing, but he has a beard. And here he is in association with Anubis, the god who will figure predominantly in our spell. So thinking about these clean-shaven Egyptians of earlier eras, what did they shave with? They had copper uh, blades that were used. What they didn't have was shaving cream. And it is unlikely that you would have had hot water, so it may be a very unpleasant experience in the, in the process. Of course, the Egyptians actually had barbers, professional barbers as well. And those were individuals who worked around town who would carry a bowl of undoubtedly cold water, and they would have their copper blades. And we have some of these in our Oriental Institute collection, as a matter of fact. Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to see those uh, in the future when people can tour our galleries once more. Interestingly enough, we have some remarks on the quality of those barbers. We have a statement from a, in a wisdom text from the Ptolemaic period, around the 300s BC, where an individual says, if only my mother were my hairdresser, that she would do what is nice. Did they shave for fashion or for comfort, or was there any status involved? The requirement for shaving is only for the priestly caste, that you had to shave in order to be on duty in a temple. 
But for other individuals, there was no such official requirement. It was just the popular style. We do have examples of mustaches that come in and out of favor. In the old kingdom, in the pyramid age, we have some very prominent individuals with nice mustaches. In this Roman period, why did the style change? To a certain extent, it's probably imitation of Greek fashions, so that people are imitating Greek or Latin fashions. Well, Latin fashions themselves imitate Greek philosophers. The other interesting thing about last time's discussion that might have gone unnoticed is while, while what we have in this particular text is a desire to uh, make a man lust for a woman, we have just the opposite preserved in some spells, especially a Coptic spell that Foy alluded to that we own in the Oriental Institute, which is designed to make a man as limp as a rag on a dung heap, which answers the burning question, what did the ancient Egyptians use for toilet paper? Of course, we all want companionship in one form or another, and this particular spell is an extreme version of what many people may be suffering through right now, the desire for interpersonal communication or contact. But this is contact with force and with demons and with lust. And we can see that very clearly depicted with Anubis in the act of shooting an arrow of his forces directly into the body of the intended victim through the agency of a ghost. So you're calling upon a ghost and you will ultimately be placing this spell with a mummy to invoke his power. And so what is happening is that the god Anubis is being asked to compel a ghost in the underworld. For the Egyptians, the underworld is the west because that's where the sun sets. And it is thought that the dead also follow the path of the sun and go into the west. And that term for underworld survives into the Christian period where Amenti gets recast, not as the underworld for the blessed dead as it had been in earlier periods, but as hell. And in this particular case, you're, having, you're trying to invoke a hellish notion for a specific individual. So since Anubis is Pharaoh in the West, he is a, the appropriate individual to compel other ghosts to perform acts for this particular woman. And that's what we see in our papyrus. The way in which Anubis actually does that is also interesting. Because the bow and arrow that he shoots, we can see outside of our papyrus on gems that you could carry around with you. This was published by Sir Flinder Petrie, the father of Egyptian archaeology, in 1927. And this is something you could carry around on your person to essentially produce the same kind of effect that the woman who wrote this papyrus, or had this written for her, I should say, that this would be your amulet to walk around with you to get that result. And we can also see that adapted for something contemporary with our papyrus, with a Roman-style depiction of Anubis with the bow. So we can actually get this image that we have on our papyrus in a variety of settings, showing it's not unique to this one text, but is part of the understanding of the Egyptians of what Anubis can do and how he does it. We can see here uh, from Brooklyn, there is a stela showing various demons who are associated with the Sphinx god, whose name is Tutu, who is the 
controller of demons, demonic forces, and right in the middle of the, the demons above Tutu, who's back, the middle fig figure, actually third from the left, is our god Anubis. Here he's not using a bow, he's got a knife, but he is with a whole group of other demonic forces. And so these are the demons that he would essentially lead as we see in his actions in our papyrus. Just a little curious about, and this may be beyond the scope of this podcast, but uh, demons and where the Egyptians believe they came from, what the mythology is behind them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're assistants to the gods. So it's on a sliding scale between humans and gods. They're somewhere in the middle, compelling forces, so, somewhat like, well, like demons in Christianity, although they're not inherently evil necessarily. They're, they're messengers of the gods. We have reference to them. We have a reference to messengers of the god Osiris. Who, who threatens to send them out of the underworld. So those demons we, that he's talking about, that Osiris is talking about, live there in the underworld. Presumably these live there also. Where the demons that accompany Anubis come from, I would assume that would be the underworld, since that's where his powers primarily reside. You know, if you grew up in... Uh, probably America, anyway, you just, you think of demons a certain way, and you think of them as a certain thing, and the way that you articulated their function to the ancient Egyptians, it's just a very different idea. Well, there's an ultimately interesting development that happens with these Khatiu demons, is that they're, they're forces that are to be feared, obviously, but in order to placate them, people begin to worship them in the late period, and they actually develop a cult around them associated with Tutu, and also with the little temple where the Oriental Institute is working now. That was a site where you would actually worship these Khatiu demons, to placate them, to ward them off, to protect you from sickness. The god Tutu is the master of such demons, and he gets a cult in the Roman period. A new temple to him was just recently discovered in the Oases. And the reason why gods of sickness would become a force of worship is that if you can placate them, if you can satisfy them, they will not attack you. And we even have individuals in the Roman period who have these Khatiu demons is, as part of the name. So people name their children the one who belongs to the Khatiu demons. So it becomes a popular way of dealing with warding off disease. So these are a major feature in the later notions of how the world of divine forces works and interacts with people. We have this much earlier, of course, with the goddess Sahmet, who's the goddess of war, plague, and disease. But she's also a major goddess that people placate. Even the cult notions of how you deal with the ferocious goddess, lion goddess Sahmet, or to make her happy, play music to her, and she changes into the happy, fuzzy little cat goddess Bastet. So the notion of placating ferocious forces to make them hospitable is a long-standing feature in Egyptian religion from earliest times. But the Khatiu demons are a later phenomenon, but it's still characteristically Egyptian in the way it works. It's the same general technique, just new persons. This is, this is one of the dangers, Steve, or maybe one of the areas where as translators we have to be more careful because when we use terms like demons, 
uh, especially in, let's say, modern American society, you might get implications about what that means that weren't original to the ancient Egyptian terminology. So Robert, you're talking about Anubis using control over the dead to compel this individual, the target of the spell, to search around for the woman writing this spell. I, I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about what that means to compel this idea of compulsion that's sort of central to this text? That actually is a key feature of the written text that we have. In fact, the word appears repeatedly in the text is probably one of the most common words in our magical spell. And this word, which is chit, uh, I can show you here in a couple of examples out of our papyrus where it says the chit, the compulsion of, and then we have breaks. But in these contexts, it's the compulsion of various different magical spirits who are being cast against both Anubis and against the ghost and against the individual Cephalus, who is the ultimate target of this lust spell. I did a study of this word, as it happens, some years ago, in an article entitled Internal Curse on the Reader of These Lines. Uh, I think I'm probably one of the very few Egyptologists who's made reference to Manuel Puig, the Argentinian novelist in an Egyptology article. But I looked at examples of magical texts from the Coptic period, which said anyone who would open this magical spell, who might find it where it had been hidden and then read it, it the effects of that were in the spell would come onto the reader by this fact of compulsion. And so then I wanted to do a study of what does this word compulsion actually mean? Because it can, the same word, can also mean not merely an abstract force, but specific demons who are chatiu demons, which becomes demotic heat. So it's a slight sound shift. And here's a picture of it. You can see written out in hieroglyphs. And the determinative, the little sign at the end showing a figure holding two knives, is indicative of what this word actually means. These are attested from our earliest Egyptian records all the way into the Roman period. And these are slaughtering demons. And it's also related to another word, the word chaut, which is the direct antecedent, I think, of the word chit that we have in our demotic text, because it is what occurs in a text of possession that we get from the third intermediate period the uh, Libyan period in Egypt. That's a term, chaut, which survives all the way into Christian times as shoit. And it has been translated in various different ways. Here you're seeing a, a section from my article. It's been called inspiration, ecstasy, exorcism, doom, fate, fury, and curse. With so a wide variety of nuances, the question is, what does it actually mean? This earliest example is in a story of Winammon which details how a seer in the town of Byblos is seized by the god Ammon with this word being used for the term for possession. So the god Ammon seized one of among his seers. He caused him to be in chit, in chaut, an ecstatic state. 
And this is sort of ecstatic state by force is what we actually can see when we look at other examples. I've, I found, uh, this was years ago, uh, 53 examples of the word and we in demotic. And it's written in various different ways. And here you can see three different ways. The next to last is the what we have on our papyrus. You can see the zigzag shape there. That is exactly what we get also on screen with the papyrus written out just phonetically. Uh, right there. So there is our word. And if we look and see how it's used, we can even see in a demotic magical papyrus from London and Leiden, here is the spell to, bring an, to force Anubis to bring in ghosts. Let them come into being in proper form, established, correct, enchanted in accordance with the heat. This is this compulsive power. The term fury is here in, in the old publication. This was what was, it was originally translated as. Of the one who was great of reference, for I am in magical names, and I cast heat against you, Anubis. This casting, the tossing, the throwing of the force of heat is literally the precise phrase that we get in our text over and over again. So it's a very specific traditional notion of casting of magical possession against, here as we can see, Anubis, so that he then in turn brings in and compels spiritual forces. This is exactly the same procedure we have. The text that you're looking at from the London Lud Magical Papyrus is to ask for oracular questions, but it's again using the dead, compelled by Anubis, with this force of magical compulsion or possession. The practice that we have on our magical spell is the same, the purpose is slightly different. You're still invoking the dead through Anubis with the force of compulsion or possession. This would be the same term you could use uh, if you wanted to make a movie of the Egyptian exorcist. It would be this word. Now, the, interestingly enough, the way in which that kind of possession it moves on from Anubis into the intended target, in this case, the individual named Cephalus, is found in another demotic magical text. Uh, Leiden Papyrus 1, 346, which invokes these slaughtering demons. The 12 spirits, who are the Hatiu demons, who make slaughter, who create disturbance, who hurry through the land, who shoot their arrows from their mouths. And so these slaughtering demons, who are Chaut, related to Chit, they produce the function of possession by using arrows from their mouths, which goes into Anubis, who is shown using arrows himself to shoot power into the deceased. So both the compelling forces of the, the demons and Anubis both use this new notion of an arrow shot, one to afflict. Anubis, another to afflict, afflict the intended target of, this, of the whole spell. So it comes full circle. So what is it that she actually wants? What's the, 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 the word for that or the term for that? 
Well, that's an important question because it's the pivotal term in the papyrus. And it was also one of the problematic ones because it is not written in a way that one would expect. You're seeing it here, this is the word, and we have decided that it is actually a writing of the word mer, which in Egyptian means to desire. And here it is written with the determinative, which is on the far left-hand side. That's actually a penis, a hieroglyphic Im image of a penis ejaculating, which has become super uh, simplified in demotic script. So we know what the range of meaning is. It's pretty clear. The question is, which, which verb is it actually? And the problem is the initial signs on the right-hand side, everything in demotic reads from right to left, gives you what looks like a loop at the top, and then there's a little dot and slash underneath. And the sign just to the left of that is a simplified form of a man holding his hand to his mouth, telling you this is a expression of some sort of emotion or thinking. Now, you couldn't possibly imagine by staring at that little bit of ink that that is a, a man holding a hand to his mouth because we have a highly simplified script in demotic. It is essentially like short. And so if we had the classic verb to love, we would expect a plow to be the first sign, which is how the Egyptians write the verb to love. But instead, we've got a circular form, which isn't the way you would expect to write it. So if we look for verbs that might be this example, one of our first choices was the verb rech, to know. Here you can see a sheet from the demotic dictionary, which shows us an example. In the middle there, you can see what it would look like in hieroglyphs. It's a mouth over a circular form with hatching. On the right-hand side, you can see examples of what that actually looks like in demotic. And if you go down into the middle, you can see there's an example where they simply lost the R, which is a little diagonal tick over the top, and it's just this circular form that spins around, which is not unlike what we've got in our papyrus. So it could be that. However, what you want is for something to have the appropriate determinatives as well, and in the new Chicago Demotic Dictionary, we have added examples of rech to know with the phallus determinative. And that is the sense of biblical knowing to have sex with. So is that what we've got here? The problem is it doesn't have the man with hand to mouth. So it is, it's got one of the determinatives, but not two. And the absence of the little diagonal tick is a little disturbing, as is the absence of whatever that is that's underneath it. So while the first shape looks like it could be rech, and it would fit the context, asking that Kephalus know her in the sense of have biblical sex with her. Boy, that is a wrong term. <laughs> to, have, <laughs> to have knowledge of her in the biblical sense. It doesn't seem to be the right word. So we went back to the look word for love or desire and look for examples there. And here you can see in the middle what it should look like in hieroglyphs, which is a plow, which is quite angular. And most of the examples that you look at show the plow. And by the way, the hieroglyph there is shown going left to right 
hieroglyphs can go left to right or right to left. Demotic is always right to left. So you have to mentally flip the plow. So if you look at these signs on the right-hand side, the rightmost one has this pointed angular form, which is the plow. So we would expect that, and obviously that's not what we've got, but we do have some forms in the Roman period that look suspiciously like what we actually have. It's hard to imagine how anybody could take an angular plow and make it into a nice little circle, but they did. And so there is an example under the Roman period, which even has a little stroke underneath it, which is closer to what we've got. The question is, does it also appear with the right determinatives? And yeah, there are some examples of that in the Roman period. So we have the word mare with a phallus determinative there at the end, meaning to lust after. And we even have an example from a romantic tale, a magical tale, involving mummies and, and loving and lusting, which writes mare with the phallus determinative. Here, this, this romance of Setna Khamwas, a magician who goes and interacts with mummies and uh, lusts for a papyrus. So if we compare the writing that we've got in Setna, notice that on the left-hand side, we have both determinatives in Setna. We have both determinatives also on our example in the Michigan Papyrus. And the circle form that we've got, although it's not an angular plow, is fairly close to what we've also got in Setna. So this is our word. But that's the kind of way that one has to go in determining what you've got with demotic, because you don't have simple alphabetic signs. Demotic does. But in most cases, it doesn't use them to spell out words. You use groupings of, of letters that have been fused together or old, inherited, complex ideograms. These are complex signs that represent a picture that are not, that are not simple spellings of words. And so what you're trying to figure out with Demotic is what has happened to this ligature, and when these things are all grouped together, how do you read it? It's like reading your grandmother's handwriting on a postcard. You're, you're reading longhand, but particularly simplified longhand, fast and with lots and lots of forms linked together, tied together so that you can't see individual shapes so easily. It's actually a deciphering process. I was just gonna say, imagine your grandma drawing pictures and not just <laughs> writing letters. Another thing to say about that, uh, as far as trying to figure out the reading of these words. On the one hand, we're looking at the paleography, the spelling, all of this detail that Robert's been talking about. Uh, but another aspect of this is looking at other texts for parallels. And one thing that uh, seemed very strong in favor of this interpretation of reading this as mare is that in another demotic magical papyrus that parallels phrases from our papyrus that we're working on in Michigan, it uses in the same spot as one of these writings like this from our papyrus, a more traditional standard writing of the word mare to desire. And so that really helped to sort of cinch for us uh, the correct reading of this very crucial word throughout this text. One important feature to stress, however, is that this is not romantic love. Our love spell is unusual in being written for the benefit of a woman compelling a man. Here we have a more traditional example, a more common example, 
which is a demotic spell that I worked on a number of years ago for publishing the London and Leiden Magical Papyrus. And here it is a man wanting to force a woman's love. Here, slightly more romantic. Uh, you can see it says, my heart yearns, my heart loves, a longing as a she-calf feels for a tomcat, a longing that a she-wolf feels for a wolf, etc. Let so-and-so fill in the woman's name here, who so-and-so bore the woman's name, feel for me, whom my mother bore. Let her feel a yearning, a love, a great madness. She's seeking after him everywhere. This is phraseology that we have in ours as well. Uh, the fury, and here is the word heat again, translated in the old style as fury, of various magical names. And then I cast this force of fury or heat against you, great gods of Egypt. Fill your hands with flames and fire. Cast it on the heart of add the woman's name here, add who so-and-so bore, add her mother's name there, wither her spirit, take her sleep, O man of the West, which is to say we're casting this fury, this compulsion against a ghost, exactly as what we have in our spell. So here again, we have a ghost called out. Call out while the flame of fire is against her, while she speaks, saying, mercy, tear her name out of Egypt for 40 days. And then the rather interesting form of what you do to make this come into effect, little surprising, you take crocodile dung, donkey placenta, various different other unpleasant forces, uh, antelope dung, gall, and oil, and then you make the recitation over it and anoint your penis with it. And then lie with a woman. Good luck doing that. And then you should anoint your, the woman's heart. Now, the reason why these particular group of items were selected, donkey, this and that, and excrement, is that these are related to the god Seth, who is another compelling figure. He is the god who killed Osiris. He is a threatening god. And his sacred animal is the donkey. So that is why you are using other compelling features with crocodile or donkey, other aspects of the god Seth to go with this compelling of fury. If you've already ensnared, ensnared the person with the spell, why does the text specify to anoint your body parts with these materials? Well, those instructions are not in our spell because those are the directions for what you do once the individual actually comes to you. And the point there is to make them actually desire the process that they enjoy or submit to or agree to having sex with you. And we have spells that are designed just for that part, uh, so that also in the demotic magical texts, we have prescriptions to cause a woman to love her husband, which is to say to desire having sex with him. And that includes various different fruits, which are pounded up with sweet elements, just the opposite of the dung, et cetera, that we've got in the earlier ones. And those also are to be put on your phallus, and then you lie with a woman, and presumably this will stimulate her for attraction. Uh, more specifically, to make it clear what it means to cause a woman to love her husband, is the following spell, which says to make a woman love copulating with her. Foam of a stallion's mouth, anoint your phallus with it, and lie with the woman. Why? because a stallion is considered to be a sexually powerful beast, and if you can transfer that, 
that notion to you, then you too will be a stallion. Now, while all those spells are designed to bring a man and woman together, we also have in the demotic magical texts spells for just the opposite, to drive them apart. So from, again, the same London and Leiden magical papyrus, we have a spell to cause a woman to hate a man. And to do that, you bring dung and hair of something that is dead, obviously noxious things, invoking the power and probably of Seth, and you mix them with flowers and you put it on a new papyrus and you say, may so-and-so fill in the person's name, born of so-and-so, hate so-and-so, born of so-and-so. You recite it seven times and then magically say, here are the names and hurry, hurry, be quick, be quick. That last invocation, hurry, hurry, quick, quick, is exactly, again, a phrase that we get in our magical papyrus, because that's a traditional notion. Another one, a spell for separating one person from another, this uses a term that's not, this is, this is gender nonspecific. Again, employs dung. You again, a papyrus that you write their names on. But here, it says specifically the name of the man you put on there, and you bury it under the door sill of the house so that when the man walks over it, the spell will take effect on him. And here are the names, and you recite those. So this gives you a way in which the magical spell actually interacts with the victim and causes them to hate because he steps on it and makes contact. The idea of trampling underfoot, by the way, is an Egyptian magical gesture, which is a way of showing hostility. That's why kings are shown with foreign enemies trampled down under their feet regularly in Egyptian sculptures and wall reliefs. I've shown you examples of separating a, a woman from a man, a person from a person, but we also have examples of specifically a man from a man where you, again, you use elements from a black donkey. So again, something that's Scythian. And we know this is specifically a man from a man because it says, I call upon your great name and cause him, fill in his name, to be separated from him, fill in his name. Magical names, et cetera, et cetera. Fill in, separate him from him because I am the demon XXX. Separate him from him. This is a homosexual spell designed to separate man from man. The examples of compelling or separating that we have in magical texts, woman and men, person to person, man for man, continue also when Egyptian religion converts to Christianity. So that in early Christian magic, that is to say Coptic magic, we get a continuation of the practices that have been used in earlier pharaonic times and in Roman times. In this volume that I contributed to in 1994, we have spells to compel or to separate that use old style practices. So here, this Coptic love charm, originally published in 1939, is actually a homosexual love charm. By the powers of Yao Sabuath and Rus, 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 magical names. I conjure you by your powers and your charms and the places over which you are and your names, that just as I take you and place you at the door and the pathway of Pahelo, the son of Maore, you shall take his heart and his mind and you shall be master over his whole body. 
When he stands, you shall not allow him to stand. When he sits, you shall not allow him to sit. When he sleeps, you shall not allow him to sleep, but let him seek after me from village to village, from city to city, from field to field, from country to country, until he comes to me and becomes subject beneath my feet. I, Papalo, son of Noah, his hands full of every good thing until I have fulfilled with him my heart's desire and the longing of my soul with a good will and indissoluble love. Now, now, quickly, quickly do my work. This magical spell for a man for a man has a whole series of elements that we've already talked about before. You're placing at its door, which is exactly what we saw in the Roman period pagan spell for putting the separation spell under the door. So this will come upon him the moment he steps on the threshold. You're, not a, you're, you're taking control over his whole body, which is what happens in our Roman period magical spell for the woman wanting to compel a man, where he cannot stand, sleep, etc., have love and sickness. And that's exactly what we have here. And demanding that he seek after him from village to village is comparable to our magical spell from the earlier Roman period, where we ask that uh, Cephalus make the movements of the constellation spinning round and round, seeking after her everywhere, unlike the non-stopping movement of the heavens. From field to field, from country to country, until he comes to me and becomes subject beneath my feet, specifically the image of trampling that we had referenced to, that I had just mentioned, in Pharaonic statuary and in the magical text that you get to separate uh, two individuals where you place something under the doorway so he'll step on it. Until I have fulfilled with him my heart's desire, this is specifically the word mare that we've talked about in our papyrus. And the longing of my soul with a goodwill and indissoluble love, then again, the word for mare. And ending up with the phraseology that also finishes off our papyrus, now, now, quickly, quickly. So although this is from the Christian period, and we have individuals clearly of that time, with a man by the name of Noah, for example, the practices and techniques are entirely traditional and ancient. The gods may have changed. Everything else is the same. Now, we can also find in the Coptic period some pretty unpleasant ways to try to separate individuals. And here again from the same book, my translation, this was a spell that was known to be a curse, but there was some misunderstanding about what it actually was. I was able to figure out what the Coptic was at the crucial point because there are some really odd misspellings in this particular text. But let me read that for you. And it invokes the Christian hierarchy. Maria, Michael, Gabriel, Suliel. Those are archangels. You must bring away by the method of an ulcerous tumor. Arise in your anger, bring her down to a painful end. Put aside marriage and send forth punishment, she putting forth worms, that is to say, Martha. My Lord Jesus Christ, you must bring her down to an end. Yea, Jesus Christ, you must dissipate her hope so that no one desires to assist her. Sign of the cross times three. So here we are evoking Mary and the archangels against Martha to make sure she doesn't get a chance to marry someone. Clearly indicated to separate her from a potential suitor. 
And the, and the notion that you are asking these archangels to rise up is exactly what we've got in our magical text, asking the dead man to rise up out of the underworld. Here we're asking archangels to rise up out of heaven or wherever they might be and strike her down. And the notion of striking her down would be the descendant of our notion of fury, the compulsion. And for clearly a very, very negative terms, because we don't want her merely not to get married. We want her to have a horrible tumor and have worms flowing out of her body. This, I should stress, is in the Christian period. It, it seems like something you said earlier was that the, the gods are different, but the traditions are the, are the same. The notion of asking for, for spirits, angels or demons, to compel your work, to, to have an effect upon another person, is the same. We can find parallels for the demotic spell written in the Greek language in magical spell here in Paris, where it says, Isis came holding her on her shoulders her brother, who is her bedfellow. That would be Osiris because Osiris married Isis. And then we have those then paralleled with Greek gods. Zeus came down from Olympus. And all the immortal gods and goddesses came to see the phantoms of the dead. Do not therefore delay, do not loiter, but dispatch, O gods, the phantoms of these dead. So here we have, again, the compelling of the dead. In Egyptian terms, this would be man of the West. Here we have it translated over into Greek. In these dead, that they are adjured by magical names here, send up the phantoms of the dead to her, her fill in her name and his mother's name is so-and-so, that she may full perform the add-in whatever it is you want. The technique for bringing our spell into effect is to place this spell ultimately with a mummy in the necropolis. That would be your ghost that you're activating, you're, that you're forcing to commit this compulsion for you. And we can get a direct reference to that in another magical spell, again, the London and Light magical spell, and here you can see an old translation that I worked on many years ago. A spell to bring a woman to a man. It also sends dreams that so you compel her in dreams to come and want to seek you out. If you do it, you should put it on the mouth of a mummy. It brings a woman. You should write this name on a reed leaf with the blood of a hoopoe, and you should put hair of the woman on the leaf, and you should put it on the mouth of a mummy, and also write it on the ground, bring so-and-so, bring the daughter of so-and-so to the house, to the sleeping places, your name here, and your mother's name there. So there's very specifically saying how you affect this spell. That's why our papyrus was folded up. You can actually see the creases where the papyrus cracked to be put on or in the mouth of the mummy lying in the tomb. What is also interesting is that this little Coptic papyrus was folded repeatedly and to make it into a very small packet, which was then inserted into a tomb. So it is precisely the same practice. Although we're calling upon angels to rise up, we're putting it with the blessed dead to ask them to be an intermediary or to tell them to be an intermediary. So the technique of using the dead, calling upon spirits and demanding that they do your personal will with respect to another person's love life 
is the same. Before we leave, let me leave you with an aphorism from an ancient Egyptian literary text, The Shipwrecked Sailor. Wash yourself, place water on your fingers. So do as the ancient Egyptians recommend. For over 100 years, the OI has been a leading research center for the study of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations. Join us in uncovering the past and learn about the beginnings of our lives as humans together. Become a member by visiting oi.uchicago.edu slash member.